So I, I want to share a little sutta with you all and use it as an opportunity to discuss um, some of the sort of best things in life, I guess I would say. This is in the Anguttara Nikaya, um, sutta number seven. It's in the Book of Sevens, number six. And the title, uh, this is Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, as you can probably tell. And the title is Wealth in Detail. And the reason it's in detail is because the sutta just before it is Wealth in Brief. (laughs) And it just gives the list of these seven treasures. Uh, And sometimes when people talk about it, they, they use that translation, seven treasures, So here the Buddha is saying there are these seven kinds of wealth. The wealth of faith, the wealth of virtuous behavior, the wealth of, now this is Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, moral shame. And then the next one is the wealth of moral dread. And I'll talk about those. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi was just visiting us this last week, and we actually had a Part of our conversation was about these two qualities. And we also talked a bit about this at Sutta study on Wednesday. So some of you already have the preview on that. And then the next one is the wealth of learning. And then the wealth of generosity and the wealth of wisdom. Like to have these seven treasures in our life is so powerful, so beautiful, so Um, stabilizing. So I guess I would say um, encouraging. It brings confidence. We, We are having, with these seven treasures, we live a happy life here and now, and we are confident of how things come together in the future. So the Buddha didn't say that here, but that's something we can observe for ourselves and also gather from other teachings that the Buddha gave about how much, you know, how do we really live a beautiful life? And this is, you know, this is one way to frame it, to see like, how are these seven treasures showing up in my life and how might I um, bring them more to fulfillment? So because this sutta is in detail, it gives a a description of what each of these means. And that's important because sometimes the Buddha will define these qualities um, a little bit differently in different cases, depending on who he's speaking to and what the context is. So in this case, the Buddha talks, he defines the wealth of faith by uh, saying that a noble disciple places faith in the enlightenment of the Tathagata. And then he talks about the blessed one being an arahant, being fully accomplished, knowing the worlds, that usual, that stock sort of um, paragraph that we chant frequently of the Buddha's qualities, that the Buddha is the enlightened one, the blessed one. So this is what we call the wealth of faith. 
Now, of course, in other places, when the Buddha talks about faith, he'll also talk about the faith in the Dhamma, the faith in the enlightened Sangha. But here, he just talks about the faith in the enlightenment of the Tathagata. And I think it's um, interesting when the Buddha refers to himself as the Tathagata. It's like, um, it's so impersonal. It's It's not about him at all. It's like the Tathagata is this phenomenon really of this enlightened fully enlightened buddha and you know that that this is um this is something that happens from time to time in the world that someone when there's no description of dhamma the dhamma will always be there but the whole world can forget <laughs> It's come to a point where there's no clarity around what the Dhamma is anymore. And then someone arises, someone is, is born into the world who has the, the karma to discover it again. And the Buddha talked about this. <clears throat> I think it's really helpful to remember, and those of you who come often to these teachings, have heard this before, but it's important to remember that the Buddha didn't make up a philosophy. He wasn't trying to, you know, come up with some way of describing what happens. He discovered it. He said it was like, it's like finding a, an overgrown path and, and moving your way through it and coming to this abandoned ancient city and discovering it. It's like it already exists. That's the way he at one point describes the discovery of the Dhamma. And to really see it so clearly as he did on the night of his enlightenment that he could distill and he had the ability to distill it into a way of describing it that we could understand it, which is so amazing what a gift that is. And so when you, we think about faith, in Buddhism. And it is, it is at, you know, um, partially seeing something, partially accepting it, and then exploring it. And the Buddha never wanted us to just accept things blindly. So it's not a blind faith. And it's not the goal of Buddhism to have faith. The goal of Buddhism is to know for ourselves the whole thing, full awakening. And, and the faith helps us get there before we see it completely for ourselves, that we have enough confidence in the awakened mind or in the Buddha, if you will. I mean, as some people say, you know, I don't want to bow to a person. I don't want to bow to the, uh, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha, the uh, Siddhartha Gautama, but then, but we can pay respects to that awakened mind, that this is what is possible for us also. The Buddha said that arahants have the same awakening as the Buddha, in the same, the same knowledge, but the difference that we see in the scriptures and the suttas is that the Buddha finds it without anyone being able to point the way. He had to really make his way through all that brush and bramble and, and overgrown 
overgrown path to find it. So this is a, this is something that I know I feel incredibly grateful for. I feel incredibly grateful that the Buddha taught for 45 years and we have so much of his teachings recorded and passed it down and, and, and quite, um, quite a pristine um, sort of volume, you might say, pristine uh, rendering, because it's like this is what we can base our own practice on, and then we can see for ourselves. So powerful. So that first um, wealth of faith is like that. And then the second one, virtuous behavior, and here the Buddha describes it as the noble disciple abstaining, <clears throat> abstaining from the destruction of life, abstaining from taking what is not given, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from false speech, abstaining from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. Now, I discovered something interesting in looking at the sutta because in Bhante Sujato's translation, he also includes, when he comes to speech, after saying abstaining from lying, he includes abstaining from divisive speech, um, harmful speech, and frivolous speech. And you can say, well, how is that possible? Don't you just look at the Pali and see whether or not those other um, aspects of right speech are there or not? But actually, the Pali itself has ellipses. So my, I suspect that the reason Bhikkhu Bodhi only has the, the false speech represented is because this is obviously part of the five, this is the five precepts. But that, that ellipses, that dot, dot, dot <clears throat> in the Pali itself um, leaves open, like, where do you take the previous text from in the suttas? So you're, it's, it's saying, and this happens a lot in the, in the Pali, and it's like it's got the dot, 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 these ellipses referring back to a previous section where it's completely there. And then it, I, I'm thinking that Bandi Sujato is pulling from a different place where the Buddha uses this same collection of things, and it has the, the other parts of right speech included. And of course, for our purposes, the, the wealth of virtuous behavior is going to include all the aspects of right speech. All right, let's say you're a little wealthier if you <laughs> include those other three um, parts, I think. So this is, you know, we can think, oh, well, I've heard this a hundred times before. Yeah, this is what virtuous behavior means. But then, you know, it's really important that we ourselves, I think, look for examples in our life and look for examples that we hear about where people are keeping the precepts, maybe even in an exemplary way. So this weekend is Memorial Weekend here in the U.S. And the, the reverence or the respect, the gratitude that people have for those who have, uh, quote unquote, served the country uh, in protecting it uh, in the military, particularly. You know, when I was a child growing up in the Midwest, we'd have 
Memorial Day parades sometimes, or we'd have these meetings at the American Legion Hall where there's a ceremony and raising a flag and that kind of thing. And, you know, this, this intended to be a time when you reflect on some of the sacrifice that people have made for the protection of, of the country. Now, as a Buddhist, of course, I, I'd abstain from killing any living being. And the Buddha said, you know, we shouldn't just do these precepts ourselves, but also encourage others to abstain from killing any living being. And, you know, speak in praise of not killing any living being. And so there's, and, and there's um, this reflection on how, how we relate to something like people serving in the military and serving because we also have compassion, gratitude for the courage that people have, gratitude for, um, you know, what people are trying to do, even if there, there's this collision with uh, moral virtue. And there's this story that we came across this weekend. The three of us have been talking about it. This man named Desmond Doss. He was um, he was a young man at the time of World War II, and he decided he he worked um, in a shipyard, so building ships, and he could have um, avoided getting drafted into the active military because of his his work as a shipbuilder. But he decided he wanted to go into the active military, but he was a very devout uh, Christian. And he, he determined that he would never carry a gun. And so he, was, he, would, he became a medic. And he actually saved um, many, many, many soldiers. Like the estimate is like 75 to 100 soldiers. He would run out on the field and take them and treat them. And there was a point in the Battle of Okinawa. I think so. Yeah. I mean, there was against the Japanese. Right. I think it was think Okinawa. It was anyway, he he saved. They think that he saved right there seventy five soldiers, and some of them were Japanese. And he he was um, incredibly courageous, and had this determination to not kill. And so, you know, there's, there's the, um, the reality in this world of this dark and light kama. And it's our decision where we want to stand for ourselves. And we can still have compassion for the goodness in others, regardless of where they stand. So just some thoughts on precepts and, and looking at the examples that help us reflect more carefully on our own views and our own precepts and help us to um, really increase our um, purity, which is the wealth, to have this you know, real, real wealth, this treasure of virtuous behavior running through all of our actions, our speech, and 
even our thinking, because it's our thoughts that are the, the seed for all of our speech and action. And then this, these two, the wealth of moral shame and the wealth of moral dread. Um, when we were talking with Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, we were talking about the difference in translations. So in Bhante Sujato, for these two words, hiri in Pali, uh, translated here by Bhikkhu Bodhi as moral shame, is translated as conscience by Bhante Sujato. And moral dread is translated as prudence by Bhante Sujato. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we had a discussion with Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi and he he also is like, yeah, people don't don't relate to that idea of shame so well. You know, it feels it carries that heaviness of of self-recrimination, which is not the intention of of these terms. I think the Buddha talked about these two as the guardians of the earth, that that these two like, you know, really. One thing that Bhikkhu Bodhi said that I thought was important when we talked with him is that both of these are about the present moment. Uh, sometimes I've heard the moral shame or conscience referring to what we've done in the past. And he says it's not in the intention in Hiri. It's about the present. You know, that not wanting to do something that actually degrades our character that that we you know as we are in this present moment we have that conscience around it might be something we just did but it's around the reflection on what we did right here in the present moment and also <coughs> excuse me not wanting to to have to do things say things um Put energy into thinking things that will actually bring our 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 purity of mind, our purity of action, our character down, degraded. We we think this this is beneath me. This doesn't come from kind of a sense of personal pride. It comes from an appreciation of the importance of living purely and 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 how we impact others because that's where we make most of our kama it's with other people we impact one another and so this this idea here this conscience this wanting to take care to not do things that are beneath our standard and the standard being these precepts and the the other uh, qualities that come from practicing Dhamma. And then the prudence or the moral dread is, is, is considering the consequences of actions. We don't want the consequences of lying, for example, coming back to us in the future or uh, impacting other people. So... These are the these two guardians of the world, you know, when we have that sense of conscience and we have that sense of I want to take care, I want to take care to not um, set off a reaction that comes back to us in a, in a harmful way or to others, 
that's really the, the beauty and the power of these two qualities, these treasures. So <clears throat> as a treasure, you can see how it's not about shaming. It's not about um, this kind of unproductive regret. It's really about what lifts us up and what makes our own lives and the world a better place. And then we have the wealth of learning. And of course, all of us here have had ample opportunity to learn in this world. You know, we have all kinds of systems in our various cultures to, you know, get university degrees or go to school or read a lot or investigate the internet or, you know, we've got all kinds of avenues of learning. But the Buddha, of course, here is talking about learning and remembering and accumulating those teachings of Dhamma that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end with the right meaning and phrasing. And what this means is that it's the meaning, it's got the right meaning that really is the way Dhamma works. And it's said in a way that really communicates that that meaning of what the Dhamma is. Which proclaim perfectly the complete and pure spiritual life. So this is what the Dhamma, it really communicates the whole way of living according to Dhamma. And this is another thing that I just have, I'm in awe of how the Buddha could elucidate this uh, complete path that covers every aspect of life, every aspect, every phase, every situation, there's a way to apply the Dhamma. So he says that such teachings as these one has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated, and penetrated well by view. So it's not just like, oh, I've memorized this sutta or something. There's That's part of it. But then to really, really think about it, really investigate, and really investigate how it applies in, the, in our life, in our experience, and, and taking the, the principles of Dhamma into the mind in meditation and allowing the deeper connection to Dhamma to occur so that that seeing it directly, having it really like reside in the heart, that direct knowing, that's when we really have an understanding. That's when we really can speak about Dhamma with a, with a confidence and clarity. So that's certainly a treasure. And then the sixth one is the treasure of generosity. And the Buddha describes it here. And this is, all of this applies to lay life as well as to monastic life. And he says here, the noble disciple dwells at home with a heart devoid of the stain of miserliness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing, 
This is the wealth or the treasure of generosity. And of course, we all have that experience of what it's like to freely give something. And generosity can come in so many different forms. So a couple days ago, I had a, an opportunity to help uh, Aya Nanda Bodhi up in uh, Spirit Rock. Aya Santachita uh, became ill and couldn't um, be there for opening the retreat that they're teaching. And there are a lot of people, like 97, I think, attending the retreat right now. And uh, about a quarter of them brand new to retreats, never having done it before. And quite a few people with significant life challenges. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's it's the only retreat they give each year that is based on Donna. So, you know, people can come to this retreat that can't afford to come otherwise. And um, Ayananda Bodhi wrote to me, it was kind of late at night, um, on Wednesday, I guess it was, and asked if there was any possibility that I could step in a little bit. So I went there on Thursday and spent the day uh, offering teachings and counseling. And it was just so, um, it's just such a joy if you find yourself in a situation where your whole role is to support what's happening in you know, so I didn't have any primary responsibility, but I could just fill in and, and support wherever was needed. And it's like, it's possible to get into this mental state where you're just giving and there's nothing else that's needed. It, there's a, a kind of mindfulness that can arise. People have talked about this when they're taking care of someone. Like I remember one woman who was attending one of our teachings and she talked about them, her mind becoming very still as she was uh, taking care of this elderly person. She was a, a caregiver, but she had uh, kind of graduated to, if, you, if that's how it feels, I'm not sure, but she was managing caregivers at that point in her career. And one of the people who... Uh, usually works uh, worked for that agency wasn't able to come in so she herself went to take care of this elder person and she said it was just such a beautiful experience for her because she was completely settled in just being there to do one thing after another in care of this person and there's a mindfulness that can come and a stillness that can come in the mind and so this is this is one way to be generous. You know, it's not always about materiality. It's it's also about our material things. It's also about you know how we can at the right time just be in service. And I say the right time because you know sometimes we are conditioned to be the servant uh, all the time, and that's not appropriate to. Um, I think can be can be inappropriate to a, a blossoming, developing path for ourselves. So we have to always be looking at context. You know what's what's best for others, what's best for ourselves, and hold those in balance. But just to kind of like again 
look at this afresh if we can to see, you know, where where is generosity in my life, in my own um, practice, and how might I, you know, like uh, round it out for each of these treasures. It's funny, it's like maybe we think of treasure as something that just comes to us uh, if we're lucky, but that's not how the Buddha really taught. He taught about making choices that we ourselves can look for ways that we increase the treasure in our life. These qualities, these beautiful actions and experiences. Okay, then we come to the last one, which is the treasure of wisdom. And he says, the noble disciple is wise. They possess the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away. So that's the definition of wisdom here. And other places we find a different definition, like maybe knowing the difference between skillful and unskillful qualities. But here it's the discernment of arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. And just to kind of unpack that sentence, you know, how do we know the arising and passing away to really see impermanence, to really realize that everything that comes through our senses arises and passes away? What is the penetration? What is the... um, the no, noble nature of that of that knowledge it's that we see that there is nothing we can cling to that nothing is worth worthy of being clung to that we um, exist in this process of unfolding and collapsing this is what happens constantly and that there is no self there is no core solidity that we can call me or mine. When we penetrate that completely, we don't want to cling to anything. It's all Teflon. (laughs) And this is where um, the complete destruction of suffering occurs. No clinging, no suffering. And so that's the seventh, seventh treasure So just, you know, just some thoughts about how we might explore these seven noble, beautiful treasures and increase the the wealth in our life. There's a verse that is on the end here, it says the wealth of faith, the wealth of virtuous behavior, the wealth of moral shame and moral dread, the wealth of learning and generosity with wisdom, the seventh kind of wealth. When one has these seven kinds of wealth, whether a woman or a man, they say that one is not poor, that one's life is not lived in vain, Therefore, an intelligent person, remembering the Buddha's teaching, should be intent on faith and virtuous behavior, confidence and vision of the Dhamma.
Oh, thank you for listening. I'd like to hear um, what any of you might be thinking about this and um, any questions you might have. Anybody in the room want to say anything? They look pretty um, content over here. <laughs> About the generosity, I Yes. Um, I was thinking there was a phase in my life where I would go in the mall and do shopping, and that would give me happiness. And now, now the time is where I keep thinking, how can I give? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that gives me joy. And that's, that's actually uh, lasts so much longer than the pleasure I got from buying stuff in the mall. <laughs> sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> Thank you, Nita. Could you hear Nita okay? You couldn't hear Nita? Oh, some of them could, some of them couldn't. So Nita was saying that there was a time in her life when she'd go to the mall and go shopping and she would get pleasure from buying things. She said now she's come to a time in her life when what she thinks about is how she can give and that that gives her so much pleasure and much more pleasure than ever came from, from buying things. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. Did I did I repeat that pretty? Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Virginia. No, Vandana. Sorry, I can't read the names very well. I'm gonna have to get some new glasses. Vandana. Thank you, Aya, for such a beautiful teaching. And uh, when I first came in Buddhism, and I I was when I used to hear about uh, faith. Right. For me, the previous experiences was that uh, growing up, okay, you need to have faith in the God or you need to have a faith in parents. You need to have whatever they're saying. You need to have faith in your teachers. Right. But uh, it was not clicking that it was not connecting with the heart because it, I never thought that faith can be blindly just you blindly follow anyone no matter who it is and then slowly i i was curious why people are saying you need to have faith in buddha's teaching you need to have faith and i still experiment because it has to be experimented right not nothing should be just taken uh with the blind faith it's not going to last like my previous religious belief didn't last because of uh, the just faith they they told me no you don't have to ask questions just 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 <laughs> have faith in it right uh, maybe they had reasons but never given the reason proper way so you can cultivate the faith i think the faith needs to be cultivated slowly gradually by experimenting whatever we hear so yeah but you need to stick to it <laughs> you can't just reject without uh, experimenting so yeah that's my own experience that when I started experimenting on a daily basis whatever the teachings are about the suffering the causes of suffering and then how your mind creates the narratives all that is just coming right in that yeah this is true that needs to be instilled 
if something like for the moral shame, the uh, the topic we discussed. So yesterday I was grading a paper because right now the final exams and the students have to write lesson plans for students for their their young children because my students are teachers. So one of them have written a paper lesson plan to teach children empathy. And for that, she created a lesson plan that children should be feeling uh, ashamed of themselves if they are hurting, if they're saying mean words or they are uh, are hurting somebody's feelings. But for for my feedback uh, for her was that that we we all make mistakes and children are entitled to make mistakes. But at the same time, we have to provide the positive guidance to them that how can they develop deep empathy so they are not going in that route but for that we have to be very sensitive we cannot scare children we cannot make them afraid of saying something unless we know that it's not going to harm them because we have diversity of people around very sensitive people children with special needs and we can't put the shame in their hearts. So for me, again, I'm going to experiment with this, but Pikubodhi's translation of moral shame. And I will, I will, I request your more guidance, maybe some other time, not today. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, a couple of things. Um, one point that's really important that the Buddha had in a sutta, I just recently read it, but I can't come up with the, the reference, but he says, don't put your faith in the person. So don't put your faith in the, the teacher. Don't put your faith in, you know, the parent, because we make mistakes. And there there's always that chain. He says, if you put the faith in the person, then what if that, you know, like if it's a monastic, what if they disrobe? You know, I've seen this so many times when people become disillusioned because they've put the faith in the teacher or the, the person. The Buddha says you have to put the faith in the Dhamma. And when he talks about himself as the Tathagata, it's really that impersonal, you know, you're putting your faith in the awakened mind. You're putting a faith in what the Buddha discovered and how he offered it to us. But you're not putting you're not putting faith in like like we said in a human being, and so this is very important for us practitioners. And then also this idea, I I would drop the word shame entirely. Like you're you're saying, Wandana, It's like making that conscience, you know, that idea that we really try to put ourselves in the position of the other person and and no and just kind of practice what does it feel like if i hear these words and then you know how might i feel you know how can i really um make that shift to appreciating where what it might be like for them and know that we can't fully know have that humility so i think those qualities if if your student teacher can get that across, well, <laughs> this is great, <laughs> you know, because I think the word shame is just too triggering for any of us, really, and triggering the, that because we have all this um, Western conditioning that overlays the, the teachings of the Buddha, and we have a lot of guilt, we have a lot of 
self-blame. We have a lot of blame for others in our culture. And we, we really want to be able to separate that from these beautiful qualities, which are protections and support for, for being uh, able to develop on the path. You can't really develop so well if we're just beating ourselves up. And we want to, we probably, these small children already probably have plenty of that in them already. You know, it's not easy to be trained, even as a small child. If people are telling us we're doing things wrong, it's not easy to be trained um, in a way that we have the self-dignity and give forgiveness and acceptance of mistakes and ability to just acknowledge them, forgive ourselves, forgive others and learn and, and go forward and do better. It's like, that's what we, that's what we wanna really try to support. And this is a lifelong process. You know, it starts with, with you know, entering this world, but it goes on throughout as long as we are still oppressed or hampered by this. Um, oh, I like Ajahn Suchito's uh, description of the inner tyrant, you know, or the, you know, this, this idea of putting ourselves down. This is, this is really important to understand and let go of and have the empathy for ourselves. So it's, it's like, People, someone recently said, you know, like I feel guilty and then I feel guilty for feeling guilty and then I feel guilty for feeling guilty for feeling guilty and it just never ends, <laughs> you know, it's like, and so, you know, how do we interrupt that um, un unhealthy process and begin to provide support for the heart to, to rise up out of that? Yeah, thank you. Ling? Thank you, Arya. I've been thinking about what you're talking about, the wealth of learning. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm a bit overwhelmed by you know, which one I should read. <laughs> and um, I had this experience um, when I encountered the Dharma, like I mentioned, you know, from Ajampa, and then Arya came, I just bought all her books. I love everything she said. I feel like I read a lot. I was so interested. But sometimes and I feel like I don't I don't really apply for the life or I forgot. I sort of I loved it so much but doesn't sink in. So that's kind of I don't know, is a problem or not a problem. Like I'm reread Another book, this one I loved, um, it said, um, Come and See Yourself. Mm -hmm. I read very slowly, but when I reread again, I feel like I haven't read before. I wonder if something I happened to everyone or just me, I'm getting old. No, it happens to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, it's not a, I mean, I'm, I'm really getting old by comparison to you. <laughs> And I know that the brain doesn't work the way it used to work, but that's not what's important. It is true that we'll read those wonderful books once and we get certain things from it. And when we go back, it's the same with the suttas. 
We go back and read it again. Then something else comes out because we're in a different place and we're ready to hear different things and we see different things in it. And of course, we all forget. I mean, why do we have to meet every week? It's because we forget. There are things we don't know yet and we need to revisit that. And we also forget. And, and no wonder we forget of all the things that come into our life in the, in the meantime and, and all of the things we haven't, you know, resolved yet inside. So what you're experiencing is completely what we all experience. And it's good to not be hard on yourself and not think, oh, I have to learn all this and I have to learn all of that and it's so much. Don't think like that. Think I'm opening my heart. I'm saying yes to what's good. And I'm going to keep saying yes every time the question comes. And as long as I do that, the right things will come into my, into my experience. They'll fall, the book will fall open to the page you need. <laughs> Just keep saying yes <laughs> to practice, to these treasures. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. It's James. Hi. Um, I think I can relate to what Ling says about uh, reading things and not really sort of, I think she's saying about not feeling like you're taking them or anything. I mean, uh, I, I, um, I I sort of had that, that, that sort of... Um, fear i guess that i'm not absorbing it but uh i think i think it's just a matter of just keeping on listening and keep on reading and you find it just sort of seeps into you gradually without you even realizing it i mean i'm sure my memory's uh pretty bad and yet these things just keep coming to you because it's sort of a process of transformation i guess mm -hmm. yeah but um i just want to say about the Second, what's said about generosity is that um, certainly when I first started reading about these things, I always related to material things because I don't have a lot of material things to give and uh, not, not, not a lot of money. But I realised that you can be generous in lots of tiny little ways during the course of your day. And like um, with me, me working in a shop, that um, you often have people in or just just want to chat, really. And there's this temptation to think, oh, I really should be off working or doing this. And. I have to sort of stop myself from from like trying to get back to the work and and, and just being generous with my time sometimes is is uh, I think I think people appreciate it. It does a lot lot of good. Yeah, definitely. It's not all about money in the bank, is it? <laughs> That's for sure. But I just I just want to ask about the the, the wisdom, the wealth of wisdom, the knowing arising and passing away. Um, I'm still really, really fuzzy on things like that because I, I tend, I tend to just concern myself with just sort of the, I don't know, earlier stage, I suppose, sort of faith, mm -hmm. virtue, and <laughs> good behaviour. But that, that's that just sounds so mysterious to me, you know. I mean, I kind of feel like concepts like that are probably way in the future for me, and I've got a lot of work to do before they'll really make sense. But I don't know whether there's any way you can enlarge on that that might give me some kind of <laughs> yeah i think i think letting go of the idea that it's way in the future go back to the monk with the cloth 
You know, there was a rising and passing away right there. And you just have to see it in one place. You don't have to think, oh, it's far away. It's right here. It's right here with us. And it's okay to, um, it's okay. No, it's, it's amazing and wonderful to be focused on the development of faith and generosity and, and, you know, being a, being a good person and virtue, you know, it's, it's like, that's the basis. We're not going to see into the reality of the Dhamma without those. So it's like, that's, we, we keep doing what we can do. And then we, you know, really stay open, stay open to seeing what's happening, what's happening to our own body. You know, we don't have to go further. I have this friend who um, was a monk for quite a long time and he's returned to lay life now. He was a friend of my son when my son was a monk. And one time we, I, w I was visiting Thailand and he said, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, this effort and, and people who gain a lot of learning and all of that, but then you'll have someone, you know, raised in the village in the poorest part of Thailand. And they, they just, they, they see a, a hair on their hand and they, they, and they become fully enlightened. They just like, that's all. They just look at that and, you know, it, it all show, it's, it all is revealed, you know, <laughs> And it's like, yeah, it's, it's like to, to, to not be too caught up and, you know, like all of this we have to do is this, keep that, keep that going, those practices, um, and just let it happen. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And Joyce? Yeah, would you mind just um, saying this briefly about the story of the monk with the cloth? Oh, yeah, I think James could tell it better than I can at this point. <laughs> um, what was his name again? Shula? Was it? What was his name, James? Do you remember the monk's name? I found it hard to pronounce. Is it Kula Thanka? Or um, I'm really bad with Pali pronunciation, so. Chula. Anyway, he he was his brother was a monk, and he became a monk, and um, he was so bad at memorizing the verses. Like he, they, they, you know, the Buddha encouraged memorizing passages of the Dhamma and he just like couldn't memorize any, anything at all. And his brother got, um, you know, he said, you know, you're just hopeless. You should leave. I want you, you, you leave. Um, and, and so he goes to outside or goes to the gate of the monastery and he's crying because he doesn't want to leave. He has so much faith in the Buddha and in the Dhamma, but, you know, he's just like, feels like this hopeless case. And the Buddha comes along and the Buddha asks him what's, what's going on. And, and uh, he said, you know, I'm, 
I'm just so hopeless and I can't, I can't memorize the teachings and my brother has told me to, to leave. And, um, and the Buddha said, well, no, come, come in and, you know, here, I want to, I'm going to give you this. He gave him a foot wiping cloth, white foot wiping cloth. He said, just take this cloth and focus on it and um, reflect. I can't remember exactly how the Buddha said it, but it reflect on the purity of this cloth. And so this monk went and he's just holding the cloth and he's rubbing the cloth and he sees that from his hands, it starts to get dark. It starts to get stained. And, and just by doing that, the whole Dhamma opens up to him and he sees the, the whole truth. And he, and he immediately is endowed with these incredible psychic powers. And so at that time, and you can find the verses about this in the Teragata, at that time, his brother was in charge of um, organizing the meal offerings, and someone was making a meal offering for the whole Sangha, for the Buddha and all of the monks. And this, his brother said, okay, this is for all of the monks except my brother because, you know, I've sent him away. <laughs> so all the monks go with the Buddha to the meal, and they're all at this person's house. And the Buddha notices that this brother is not there. And he, and he refuses to give the blessing to start the meal. And he says, where is Chula? I'm sorry, I don't remember. <laughs> where is he? And, and then someone says, oh, he's back at the monastery or, you know, well, in the meanwhile, our friend, the, the monk, uh, Chula, he makes a thousand copies of himself because he's got these psychic powers. He makes a thousand copies of himself and the commentary says they're all cleaning the monastery. I mean, you know, he was rubbing the cloth and he's focused on purity and now he's got a thousand copies of himself cleaning everything. And so the messenger who goes to find him can't figure out who Chula is. And he comes back and he says, there's like... There's a thousand monks over there. They all look the same. I don't know which one to get. <laughs> the Buddha says, okay, go back and just call his name and he'll come. So he does. And then he go, Chula goes to the meal. And then the Buddha starts the meal. He waited until he arrived. And it's just such a, a beautiful, um, be oh, Chula Pantika. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> he said, it's such a beautiful teaching about the compassion and patience, about, you know, how we can feel really bad, but nothing's really wrong. And, you know, to see that there are many ways to practice, many ways to awaken. Um, yeah. So thanks for asking, Joyce. Thank you. So if there's no more questions, if there is, go ahead. Anybody? No, let's meditate.
So we allow ourselves to turn inwards and just feel the quality of the heart, the mind. I like that chitta means both heart and mind. And it kind of tells us that those heart qualities and the what we think of as intellect, it's all the same thing, really. The wisdom is there. All of these treasures are there. We can settle into our posture and our breathing. We can just take the simple practice of noticing how how our mind is right now, the state of the mind, the feeling in the heart. And wherever there is some kind of hindrance, you know, wanting something, wanting to get rid of something, laxness or dullness, restlessness or worry or doubt that, that we can discover and apply our own methods for releasing those, those hindrances turning the mind to the faith that we have, to the generosity we have. To the virtue we have. We can gain confidence in our own conscience. Our own prudence. We can appreciate our own learning. It doesn't have to be vast, but we can let even even a small, even what we might think of as small, be really deep.
And what makes the learning really valuable is the wisdom, the treasure of wisdom. So we can just breathe in and let go of anything that we might be clinging to, breathe out. We're resting, relaxing, allowing a spaciousness of the mind. happiness in the mind. We can notice what qualities arise, maybe loving kindness. Kindness seems to be what fills in the space when we let go of everything else.
we um, appreciate everybody coming and those of you who came in later after we all checked in. It's nice to see you there.